Um, and my apologies for not seeing that I'd pushed the type down over the top of memorable verse, but the words over Christ are over memorable verse a little bit, but pray that you forgive me. Let's thank God for our time in the Word. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for your great grace to us, calling us out as a people. We'd ask that we would honor that gift, we would honor those promises given to us. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we'd ask that we would live in such a way that you would be pleased. In your Son's name, amen. Now, of course, in our circles, as someone suggests that Evan might be going through Romans, people let their minds race ahead and say, you're going to, like, really do Romans 9? Like, really? Well, yes, we got here, and we're looking at Romans 9. Now, Romans 9, like so many passages of Scripture, has been so featured as a as one of the proof text scriptures uh, or, or battleground scriptures for something, that it has ceased to have any place in Romans. It's like there's Romans 1 through 8 and 10 through the end of the book. And Romans 9 is its own book. It has even occurred to me uh, or uh, been introduced to me in circumstances when I have been, and I have been in various gentlemanly discussions regarding freedom of the will, that it is such a powerful, believed to be such a powerful passage that when my Reformed brethren find themselves flummoxed, they actually just say, well, Romans 9. We don't even quote it anymore, okay? It just becomes, well, so there. Sort of everybody immediately remembers Romans 9 and how powerful a passage it is for people like John Calvin. Now, Let's grant that people who hold to determinist thought have an exegetical uh, time or enjoyment of Romans 9. Our our intention is not to teach that it is wrong, that understanding is wrong, or that a freedom of the will understanding is right. Because St. Paul had no idea that Romans 9 would become this banner snapping in the wind over the battlefield between the Christians. People going, is not, is so, is not, is so. He was trying to teach the Christians in Rome about the nature of the gospel, about the nature of the Christian life. We've been covering that the last few chapters in 6, 7, and 8. The problem of sin in man, the nature of faith, the nature of the promise to Abraham. And so it is healthiest when you approach any scripture is to begin with what you've already heard in this and just allow the scripture to tell you what the questions are so that you can hear the answers in terms of what the scriptural questions are. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the basic errors of judgment and the reason that proof texts are so dangerous, any kind of proof text, ones that agree with you, ones that don't, is that they presume that the question being discussed over here 
is, of course, the question being answered by this scripture, liberated from its context. This is how it works. What should we say to a person who who thinks it's unjust for God to elect some and damn others? Let's turn to Romans 9, shall we? Who are you, O man, that you should talk back to God? In other words, we create a question over here. We have a proof text over here. We want to make sure that the questions we ask the text are not the questions we have in our 20th, 21st century Christianity, but the ones that the text is answering. So I have to validate my question as well. I have to validate the topic. I have to make sure that the people listening to the scriptures see the topic in the text, and then they see the answers applying to that topic. All right? So admittedly, since you've all heard arguments with this passage before, the key is for all of us to see if we can hold our minds to the text. Now remember at the end of chapter 8, what happened at the end of chapter 8? At the end of chapter 8, St. Paul is arguing aggressively for the glorification of the saints, right? We were predestined to be glorified, he argues. And how neither death nor life, anything under the sun, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how chapter 8 ends. And then he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay, imagine your circumstance. You're writing to a group of people, new Christians in the center of the Roman Empire, who are concerned about life eternal. Their assurance of life eternal. Glorification, that's the next thing on the list. They've encountered Jesus Christ, they've passed from death to life, and we talked about how Paul pointed to that miracle for their assurance of the second miracle. And so he assures them that God is going to bring to completion that which he started in them. And he describes how there is nothing under God's Son that could separate you from this. Inevitable, predestined glorification, conformed to the image of Christ. No way. Then he says, I'm speaking the truth. My conscience bears me witness. I am not lying. That I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he makes this admission. For I could wish myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. So you can imagine that landing in your lap after you've just been assured nothing could separate you from Jesus Christ. And then Paul volunteers that his love for the Jews is such that the the thing that cannot happen in the universe, separated from Jesus Christ and his love, would happen to him if it would earn the salvation of the Jews, if it would bring that about. Who are you? Oh, a man would die for a good man, even for a righteous man. How many of you would give up your salvation for anyone? Even your spouse, say you. I don't doubt you love your spouse. I don't doubt that at all. Now let's get down to 
they're not saved, you're saved. Would you give yours up so they could be? Would you spend life, eternal life in hell for their eternal life in heaven, if that could actually be done? Is that your emotional level? Well, I'm not saying it needs to be. I don't think that's natural. But Paul is laying claim to an unnatural level of desire for the Jews, that they would be saved. And having the ears of the people just having been taught of what life eternal, what conformity to the image of Christ is going to be for them, how we groan waiting for the adoption of sons, we're yearning for it. At the same time, he's looking back at his brothers in the Jewish race and just desperate that they might be saved. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. Most of your Bible is the Old Testament. It's the story of the Jews. The story of God's choosing them with Abraham, carrying them down through history, them being disobedient, them being judged, them being obedient, them being blessed. All sorts of great stories. And through that avenue came to us the Christ, who was a Jew, And all these things accord glory to the Jews. All of these things are benefits of being a Jew. It said that earlier in the book, to what value then the Jew? Much in every way, for to them were entrusted with the oracles of God. St. Paul recognizes how much he's indebted to, he's a Jew himself, but how much the Gentiles are indebted to the Jews. But the whole premise of this passage is that they are cut off from Christ and he would wish himself cut off if he could gain them into salvation. Now, once you realize how much Paul loves the Jews, and then you look at Paul's uh, list, uh, their resume, right? Pretty good resume. Sonship, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises, the patriarchs, and the Christ. Not a bad family. Pretty good resume. And so what a lot of Christians struggle with with the Old Testament is they don't know how the new covenant shifted things regarding the Old Testament. They look at all these things and all these promises and all these benefits to the Jews and they can't see how they should, they're not supposed to just grab it wholesale and just do Old Testament stuff. You're not supposed to. You're told you may not in the New Testament. And Christians have a hard time dealing with that disjunct. Well, the reason this disjunct is, is because of this next section. We think that unless I can go back to the Old Testament and recreate Israel today with the law or the prophets or the temple or whatever else, if I can't recreate it, 
The word of God has failed. And St. Paul says, no, it's not as though the word of God had failed. We're not understanding the nature of God's work if we think that when we look at the surface and the failure of the Jews to achieve salvation in Christ, the failure of them to to reach out to Christ and be saved, and that's what Paul's recognizing, is not a failure of God's word for the Jews. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The first point, now I have four over on the side here, the first point is that not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. Descendants are not via the flesh. True descendants are not via the flesh. And for a world in which covenants and contracts and family associations and tribes had been the rule, and how these chosen people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had passed down through their posterity this religion. To hear this is difficult. Paul is saying we deal with this by understanding that true descendants are not through the flesh. Oh, Christians still stumble over this today. Still trying to raise their kids as if, as if well, I believe you can be confident of the salvation of your children, but not because they're your children. But because you raised them in the gospel. Because you raised them knowing their sins and salvation. Not because they're related to you. People are always, because we have that great family attachment. A great family attachment. And with sometimes wars with our, our, our ability to accept it, St. Paul's having a hard time accepting it. He's having a hard time accepting it. because, And he'd give up his salvation to rectify it, but he can't. Because it doesn't have to do with their descent or him trading himself for them. What does it have to do with? But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are reckoned descendants. Now he's already treated, now this is why you need to read Romans before you read Romans 9. Because back in chapter 4, back in chapter 4, verse 13, The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants. So what he claims here in the early part of Romans 9 is to make everybody wake up and smell the roses. It's not going to be because of descent. Now there's a great news coming at the end of this. This is, this is, not, this is Paul dealing with his anguish. 
regarding the Jews. How does he deal with it? Does he just fall back and saying, well, gee, Abraham was promised, so everybody who's descended from Abraham gets in. There are some Christians who think that Jews are saved. They're not. They're going to the bad place, just like everybody else. Remember, St. Paul consigned all men to sin. Earlier in this book. Paul is dealing with that anguish. Just like Bill was praying for our loved ones, because various people have prayed for our loved ones, you know, our moms, our dads who don't know the Lord, or, or children who don't know the Lord. You've got anguish about it, no doubt. But we need to understand that since we cannot, you might say, birth our kids into God, that just we could just birth them into the world. We can have a relationship with our family, but it doesn't mean anything to their relationship with God. We've got to recognize what really goes on. He says, if it's not to the flesh, it's to the promise. And we know from Romans that the promise is by faith. Everyone who has faith is under the promise. For this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now that phrase, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, is out of Hosea, and which is far later in Jewish history than Jacob and Esau, and it has to do with the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel. Comparing this, who he has favored. Well, he favored Israel. He didn't favor Esau. But Paul is bringing these characters up, Sarah, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, out of the desire to show you that it doesn't have to do with lineal descent. Because guess what? When he was told, it is through Sarah that you shall have a son, Abraham had just gone, well, why can't Ishmael be the child that you're promising me? Let Ishmael stand before you this way. And God says, no, through Sarah. Abraham had a kid. Well, what's God saying when he tells Rebekah it's going to go to Jacob? Esau was the firstborn. They're twins. I mean, if anybody has a claim to Judaism, it'd be Esau. He was the firstborn of Isaac. The firstborn. What has nothing? Paul's using this not as an example of picking one and not picking the other. He's using this as an example of how it is not your lineal descent. And the Jews that are objecting to St. Paul and the gospel, maybe even hearing this passage read, who are objecting to it, realize they have accepted this idea. In their own scriptures, Paul is arguing that lineal descent has nothing to do with election. Because Ishmael wasn't elect, 
Well, we accept that. Esau wasn't elect. We accept that. What, who gets the election? Not your fleshly descendants, but those to whom the call has gone out. The promise. The promise went to Isaac. Then the promise went to Jacob. Well, golly, just like in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because <coughs> this just doesn't seem fair, right? Because you go back and read about Jacob and Esau. Who's the jerk? Jacob? I mean, he's a schmarmy individual. I mean, he's a mama's boy, and he's, you know, and Esau's manly. My brother Esau, he is an hairy man, but I am a smooth man. It's a great verse. It could be your life verse. Here is Esau out there doing his dad's stuff, being into hunting and, and bringing home things for dad, and dad really likes Esau, and boy, a man couldn't be prouder of his firstborn son. And Jacob, who's, a, again, a liar and a deceiver, with his mom, Rebecca, who is an equivalent liar and deceiver, go in and lie and deceive their dad and steal the birthright and the blessing from Esau. This is the guy. And you say, well, if it's that way, it seems so arbitrary, right? Well, you, not you. Is there injustice? Because when we, we think... Those are two options in life. We think there are two options. There is arbitrariness and there's justice. Right? Arbitrary or justice. Because arbitrary is when it doesn't seem to have any connection to what you did, and justice is for according to what you did. God calls for another category. Second point, it is by God's mercy. Mercy is not justice. Because justice, you get what you deserve. Justice depends, God, justice is a deed of God, but not on the basis of God's deeds. Justice depends on your deeds, right? It's what you do. It's, it wouldn't be justice unless it was measured by what you did. What should we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So, God, so Paul introduces the idea of mercy here. He says, no. When we're going by promise, we're not going by arbitrary. Because remember, unless the, the Jews were saying, hey, we deserve this. We've been Jews since the 1800s B.C. <coughs> Come on. We've got the descents. We've got all this resume stuff. He says, no, no, you don't seem to understand. It doesn't go by lineal descent. You admit that. It goes by promise, those who fulfill the promise. And then the people start going, no, no. Um, that seems arbitrary. Where's the, that's unjust, unjust, because it's not being measured by how great the Jews are. Paul's probably saying in the back of his mind, you don't want to be measured by how great the Jews are. The Jews should not ever want the judgment of God to actually say, let's check to see how good you were. 
when he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. God is merciful, not arbitrary. Not arbitrary, and not just in this situation. Your election depends on the mercy of God. Now, you can view this passage as being nationalistic, either following the, the ideas of elect nations or elect individuals. doesn't matter really to me that much. You know, I tend to think it's dealing with people groups just because that's how he seems to be handling it, though it, it, it percolates down to individual applications as well. The point being, when I get to mercy, what keeps mercy from being arbitrary? Because look at the quotes he gives. and he, Boy, there's nothing like looking up a quote. Okay? I recommend you do it. There's a few times that Old Testament scriptures are quoted in this chapter, and it will change what you thought you read. What does he say? He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. And and your, your mind goes back to Sunday school, and you go, oh yeah, I remember. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's why he's being mentioned. And look, he's saying he has mercy to Moses, and he has hardening to Pharaoh. Well, that's a tidy little, oh yeah, I won't bother looking it up. Well, perhaps we ought to. Now, I know that's not fair. But in Exodus 33, I gave you the reference there, so you can look it up on your own time if you wish. Exodus 33, Moses is up on the mount with God. He wants to see the glory of God. Verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Makes this great statement about mercy, compassion. Moses has just made a request to see God's face. Moses is denied. He's given something else that's very good, but he has denied his request. God says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Now, what's interesting here, that Moses is the Jew, and he's denied. When he quotes this thing to Pharaoh, when Pharaoh, it's out of Exodus 9, and this is the one people rarely know even where it came from, Romans 9, verse... 15, not Romans 9, excuse me, Exodus 9, 15. For by now I could have put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have let you live, to show you my power, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh is the one who gets the mercy. 
Moses got denied in the quote on mercy, and Pharaoh got mercy. You say, well, after those plagues, I don't think... No, God's saying, I have let you live, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes out the other end alive. He's lost his firstborn son, he's lost who knows what else. Moses gained things but was denied. Pharaoh lost things but was given mercy. Paul is throwing both of these people, a Jew, a major Jew, and a major Gentile, into the same mix and saying, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he scrambles it up by having that quote come out of Moses being denied and Pharaoh getting benefited, in a sense. Because the, the point here to the Jewish audience is that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. Now the question in the back of our mind, <clears throat> which we're not answering immediately because it doesn't tell us in the text to answer it immediately, who does he will to have mercy on? Who does he will to have mercy on? Third point, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? A person who still hasn't figured out that God has, one, decided to give it to people under the promise. If you hadn't been reading Romans clearly, you would not know what that meant, that people of faith were under the people, that were the people of promise. And so they object that God is not being just, and he says, no, you, you, that's, this doesn't have to do with justice. Justice, you get what you deserve. Grace and mercy, you're getting what you don't deserve. It's not a matter of connectedness to you and your deeds. It doesn't have to do with your will or your exertion. You won't get elect by what you do. It rests on God's grace. It rests on God's mercy. Well, they say, well, if it's all out of our control, look, remember in in Romans, Paul is aware that people try to get out of the various things that he is suggesting, be it on holiness, be it on faith, be it on this. There's always going to be, well, how about, shall we therefore sin that grace may abound? Paul's always raising questions, and this is where you see the transition of the mind of the hearer, where you're trying to frame up the question that Paul's answering. First off, not by dissent, but by promise. Secondly, not by justice, by mercy. But not by arbitrariness either. Well then, if it's God's promise, if it's not the accident of birth, or it's not the, th- his relationship to me, or him looking at me and going, hey, I like you because you're really good. Um, I think I'll save you. If it's, if it's oh, who... Who can resist his will? And that sort of snotty remark deserves Paul's response. But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? Doesn't the potter have the right, does not the creator of the universe, he is sovereign over all, have the right to make life the way it is, to make your circumstance the way it is. Some of you Jews, some of you Gentiles. Doesn't he have the right? Now, the question is not, 
how deep does that go? Does that, because we're not, remember, St. Paul's not addressing the Calvinist-Arminian question. Calvin and Arminius don't live for another 1,500 years. He's addressing the Jew-Gentile question. The Jew-Gentile question. And he's addressing the objections that naturally come up when you say, I'm sorry, Jews, you're out of the picture. I'd be willing to give up my own salvation for you. But there's nothing I can do. God has limited the election to those of the promise, not to those of the flesh. And he limited the election to those of the promise by his mercy, not by justice. And your objection when you get to this point and you don't like where you stand, I said, excuse me, I have the oracles of God, I am a Jew, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was able to rattle off all these things. A Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I'm able to do this. It's a little bit disconcerting that it's been taken out of your control. God is in charge. But what's wonderful about this, he then turns and reminds them that the nature of this mercy, since it's not arbitrary mercy, for those of you who are informed on the issue, when you hear the idea of unconditional election, because that's arbitrary election. God's mercy is not arbitrary. Who he has mercy on is not arbitrary. Because listen to what he does. He says, don't talk back to God. God has the right to make things the way he wants to make things. What if God, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power. Now, God wants to show his wrath, but what does he do? Has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction. You know, you've ever been in a situation where your friend's going, hold me back. Okay, somebody insulted them and you have to say, hold me back. God is being held back by his mercy, by his patience. He has endured with patience. While he desired to destroy the vessels of wrath, he didn't. That's what it's saying. Right? What if God, and, and Paul is asking the person who's objecting, oh, you, you're, you're going to object to God? One, don't give him any back chat. Two, what if his creation of vessels of wrath was merciful? Remember, just like Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose that my name will be declared among the nations. We say, well, isn't that kind of, well, doesn't matter to the vessels of wrath because they're vessels of wrath made for destruction? Well, why is he being patient? Who's he being patient with? Why is he enduring what the vessels of wrath do? Because they're not vessels of wrath like they do wrath. God, they are, they are receptacles of God's wrath, and God is building them to receive that. That is the menial, the menial jug, the thing that's going to be thrown away. I gave to you Jeremiah 18. Where Paul may have gotten this illustration, we don't know for sure. 
Jeremiah 18.1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Does not the potter have the right? Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you what as this potter has done, says the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your doings. Here is the illustration of the potter where Paul may have gotten it that shows the right of the potter to shape the wrath that he is going to do. And then he says, hold it. When I say, who can resist his will, I am not, don't, I'm not realizing what kind of God I'm dealing with. I am dealing with a God who shapes it, but waits, endures with patience. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There was a mercy waiting for vessels of mercy. He endured patiently, waiting. He wanted to pour out his wrath. When God saw sin, he wanted to pour out wrath. But he said, I am a merciful God. So what is he waiting for? Just like in Jeremiah, what is the non-arbitrary cause of God's mercy? I'm shaping an evil against you. Amend your ways and your doings. Repentance. Faith. It all starts to tie together when you realize, hold it, going to those of the promise. Oh, now I remember that the promise is faith. It goes to those who receive God's mercy, not God's justice. Well, who does God's mercy go to? It goes to those with faith. What's interesting here, verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Again, look it up. Okay? Because what does that make you think initially? makes you think that... Paul is referring to the Gentiles, right? You're not my people, I will call my people. It's not. In Hosea, Hosea has these children that one is called not my people, representing Israel, and one is called not pitied. And then a little later in the book, it says, those who, those of who, those who were not my people, I will call my people. It's referring to the Jews. Paul's motivation here. Motivation is to help the Jews and the Gentiles understand, out of Paul's 
you know, angst about this, this whole Jewish question, that God has not failed, but God has changed the nature of election, in, at least as far as the Jewish mind was concerned, to not be physical, to be by faith, by God's mercy. And the Jews needed to understand that. And when they did, the evil that God was shaping against them, the patience he extended to them, the mercy of that patience, now that they could be remade by God into vessels of mercy. You say, Evan, it doesn't say they could be remade into vessels of mercy. Well, it says it in Jeremiah. I will shape something else. I will not do what I intended to do to you. Some of them were reshaped, Jews and also the Gentiles. Some of the people who were called not my people are now my people. Well, he's using that passage out of Hosea to say, some of the people that I called not my people are now my people. And he's talking about the Jews, those who were vessels of wrath, waiting for God's destruction. St. Paul's saying, no, some of them are not. Then he says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel are the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and have been like Gomorrah. So basically Paul's saying there's a remnant, there's a peace, there's a part of Judaism. People that have turned and realized that it's the mercies of God. And God's patience, as he shaped this evil against them, he made vessels of wrath, and then he waited patiently, even though he wanted to be wrathful toward them. Because God's mercy responds to something. God's mercy responds to something. If you need it tied up for you by the text... What shall we say then? You can always see where Paul's shifting his gears, you know, where he's going through the argument. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, (coughs) excuse me, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were based on works. So you know, those of you said, well, Evan, if you say that God's mercy is responsive to faith, you are saying that faith is a work, because it's, I define, and this is the error, I define anything a man does as a work. Well, Paul obviously doesn't think faith is a work, right, even though you do it, right? You have this It's not through faith, but through works. Well, there's a distinction in Paul's mind. So anybody who would say, well, of course there is in Paul's mind, he's right. He understands how faith is not a work. He understands how faith is not a work. Well, how could you keep faith from being your work? I mean, you do it just like I would go out and do a ceremonial act to try to earn God's favor. That would be a work. I do the faith just the same way. I have the faith. I have the belief. Well, our brethren say of that persuasion, God causes your faith. Well, heck fire, I say. God causes my ceremonial work too, if everything is determined. Nothing 
is a work. If God, being the ultimate cause of all things, keeps, it from, keeps faith from being a work, even my works aren't works. The whole point is meaningless. There's a distinction between the faith that says, I can do nothing to please God. That's faith. God, I believe you can forgive me. Yes, I'm doing that. But the definition of works is not doing something. That's not the definition. There's a distinction between faith, which you have, and works, which you have. And Paul says, if you try to get to heaven by your works, you are trying to believe that it's based on justice. That would be a bad mistake. This is not by family. This is not by justice. It is by God's mercy being poured out to you and even down through history with the Jews, God's mercy has been sitting there waiting, allowing, giving time, turning back from his intentions, not destroying them utterly. And Paul seems to be very grateful, understands completely. The Gentiles really responded. You see that in Acts. How it says, the Gentiles... When they heard this, they rejoiced, and the Jews had rejected Christ. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This refers to where Paul, uh, Roy was reading earlier. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone which will make men stumble, a rock which will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, you have been brought to an elect status in God. You have been removed from elect to damnation, says in the scriptures. We are all by nature children of wrath. We are all by nature. Paul already in Romans consigned all men to sin, all men to the wrath of God. All of us were vessels of wrath. Nobody was, you know, from their birth saved. You all needed to appeal because if you don't believe that your vessel of mercy situation is by faith, that's not Christianity. One of the common arguments, and I don't know if it against those who would uh, say that you were chosen before you had faith, stop and you go, well then, if you were saved before you had faith, then your salvation wasn't by faith. Your salvation is by faith. We are in the promise by faith. That's how we, not just how we know we're in the promise, that's how we obtain the promise. It's how we obtain the mercy. Basically, look back over the passage. We're going to go on into chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is this great song of how God has poured out mercy to all men. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So people who had these objections about the, the narrowing down, oh, what about the Jews? Hey, what about the Jews? They're, they're the chosen people. You say, well, no, you don't seem to. We, we, we realize how chosen they were, but they were functioning on a different pattern that was not accurate. And they, can, they, they stumble because they fail to realize that they must believe in Jesus Christ. They stumble. And that Gentiles come in before them because they're elect by faith. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. So it goes on to sing great things about this, about this faith and this grace in chapter 10. And as a warning, you say, well, Evan, I don't think that 
the vessels of wrath change into vessels of mercy. Because I don't think it says that clearly here. I said, that's fine. Just show up next week. Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for your mercies to us. We're grateful for hearing your gospel, the gospel of your son Jesus Christ, and our belief in him that we might pass from death to life. Thank you for electing us in your grace. We'd ask that we would be preaching that message to all men. In your son's name, amen.